Welcome to the College Investor Audio Show, where we talk about the biggest issues impacting millennial money, from student loan debt to side hustles to building wealth. We will show you how to get out of debt so that you can build real wealth for the future. Hello, welcome to the College Investor Audio Show. We've heard this question asked a few times, so we thought we'd answer it today. Can the U.S. Department of Education allow student loan discharge in bankruptcy? Hmm, let's get right to it. So the U.S. Department of Education has the legal authority to allow a borrower's federal student loans to be discharged in bankruptcy in certain circumstances. The U.S. Department of Education has not, however, generally exercised this discretion. Instead, the U.S. Department of Education often opposes undue hardship petitions and asserts that the availability of income-driven repayment plans provides sufficient financial relief for borrowers who experience severe economic distress. The U.S. Department of Education suspended collection activity on defaulted federal student loans during the payment pause and interest waiver, which is set to expire January 31st of 2022. Starting February 1st, 2022, the U.S. Department of Education will once again garnish wages, intercept income tax refunds, and offset Social Security disability and retirement benefits to repay defaulted federal student loans. Can student loans be discharged in bankruptcy? The ultimate question. Discharging student loans in bankruptcy is possible. Very rare, though. Only, get this, 0.04% of student loan borrowers who file for bankruptcy succeed in getting a full or partial discharge of their student loans. Many don't even try to get their student loans discharged because of the expense and difficulty in qualifying for a discharge. The U.S. Bankruptcy Code provides an exception to discharge of, student, of certain student loans, I should say, blocking borrowers from discharging their student loans except when accepting such debt from discharge would impose an undue hardship on the debtor and the debtor's dependents. Okay, so undue hardship, what is that? Congress did not actually define what it meant by undue hardship. Thanks, guys. Leaving it to the courts to decide when student loans may be discharged in bankruptcy. The courts have established two standards. The Brunner Test in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 9th, 10th, and 11th circuits, and the Totality of Circumstances Test in the 8th Circuit. The First Circuit uses both tests. The Brunner Test involves three prongs, all of which must be satisfied. Number one, the borrower must be currently unable to maintain a minimal standard of living for the borrower and the borrower's dependents while repaying the student loans. The inability to repay the student loans must be expected to persist for a significant portion of the repayment term of the loans. The borrower must have had made a good faith effort to repay the debt, demonstrating that the inability to repay the debt is due to factors beyond the borrower's reasonable control. The totality of circumstances test is similar, but does not include the third prong from the Brunner test, and it's a little bit more flexible. Under the totality of circumstances test, the court considers the borrower's past, present, and future financial resources, the reasonably necessary living expenses for the borrower, and the borrower's dependents, and other relevant facts and circumstances affecting the borrower's ability to repay the debt. Unlike the Brunner test, there is no requirement that all three prongs must be met. 
Both tests establish a very harsh standard for bankruptcy discharge of student loans. What one bankruptcy judge referred to as requiring a certainty of hopelessness. <laughs> this judge was describing the impact of the Brunner test and did not establish a new criterion for an undue hardship discharge. Nevertheless, this influenced some bankruptcy court judges to adopt more stringent standards than those required by the Brunner test and the totality of circumstances test. Sheesh! There are some recent definitions of undue hardship, though. Although not necessarily the same as undue hardship, financial hardship has a similar definition. Financial hardship is defined in the Regulations for Administrative Wage Garnishment as Financial hardship means an inability to meet basic living expenses for goods and services necessary for the survival of the debtor and his or her spouse and dependents. Financial hardship is determined by comparing costs incurred for basic living expenses for the borrower, the borrower's spouse, and the borrower's dependents with all income available to the borrower from any source. The regulations for administrative wage garnishment were added in 2003 and are based on the Debt Collection Improvement Act of 1996. There will not be a quiz on this, don't worry. Although Congress did not initially define the term undue hardship, the Bankruptcy Abuse Prevention and Consumer Protection Act of 2005 added a definition of undue hardship. Legal jargon alert, here's the definition. It shall be presumed that such agreement is an undue hardship on the debtor if the debtor's monthly income less is less than the debtor's monthly expenses, as shown on the debtor's completed and signed statement in support of such agreement required under subsection, whatever, is less than the scheduled payments on the reaffirmed debt. This presumption shall be reviewed by the court. This is pretty much the equivalent of the first prong of the Brunner test that we talked about earlier. Since 2015, the gainful employment regulations have found that a program does not prepare students for gainful employment in a recognized occupation if the program has a debt service to earnings ratio of 12% or more or a debt service to discretionary earnings ratio of 30% or more. The former is the rough equivalent of total debt exceeding annual income. All right, now let's move on to the duration of undue hardship. The second prong of the Brunner test requires the borrower's inability to repay the debt must be likely to continue for what they call a significant portion. Could you be more specific, guys, when you write laws? Come on. Of the repayment term of the loan. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Just how long is a significant portion? The judge's ruling in Brunner v. New York Higher Education Services Corporation indicated that the repayment term is generally 10 years. After all, it is not unreasonable to hold that committing the debtor to a life of poverty for the term of the loan, generally 10 years, imposes undue hardship. Okay, so a significant portion of the repayment term is less than the full repayment term, and thus less than 10 years. Requiring the borrower to be in an income-driven repayment plan with a repayment term of 20 or 25 years is inconsistent with the ruling that established the Brunner test. When the Brunner test was issued in 1987, student loans could be discharged after five years without requiring a showing of undue hardship. This suggests that a significant portion of the repayment term is less than five years. Otherwise, 
borrowers could have obtained a discharge after five years without needing to demonstrate undue hardship. A showing of undue hardship was necessary only if the borrower wanted to discharge their federal or private student loans in less than five years. This is starting to clear things up a bit, huh? <laughs> a five-year standard has been used in other discharge options for federal student loans. So, for example, the total and permanent disability discharge is available to borrowers who are unable to engage in any substantial gainful activity by reason of any medically determinable physical or mental impairment that can be expected to result in death, has lasted for a continuous period of not less than 60 months, or can be expected to last for a continuous period of not less than 60 months. More legal jargon. Thus, let's explain that a bit. It would be reasonable for the U.S. Department of Education to decide to not oppose undue hardship petitions to discharge federal student loans in bankruptcy when the borrower's situation is of a permanent character and has lasted for five years or is expected to last for at least five years. So, all that said, the U.S. Department of Education has a limited statutory and regulatory authority to compromise federal student loan debt. This authority to compromise debt includes consideration of undue hardship petitions, especially when the borrower is unable to repay the debt or the cost of collection is more than one-third of the potential recoveries. By, by the way, potential recoveries include amounts obtained through the offset of income tax refunds and Social Security retirement, disability benefits, etc., in addition to the administrative wage garnishment. So despite this flexibility the U.S. Department of Education and other lenders tend to take the scorched-earth approach to opposing most petitions for an undue hardship discharge of federal student loans. They often argue that the availability of income-driven repayment plans and other deferment, forbearance, and discharge options eliminate the need for an undue hardship discharge, which are options that are actually unavailable for defaulted borrowers. This actually seems contrary to good public policy and also an abuse of the judicial system. But there is a little bit of light at the end of this tunnel. There are some proposed changes in the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. Senator Richard Durbin, Democrat, Illinois, and Senator John Cornyn, Republican, Texas, introduced the Fresh Start Through Bankruptcy Act of 2021. On August 4, 2021, we must make a point that this is actually bipartisan legislation because that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> and it restores the ability of borrowers to discharge federal student loans after a waiting period. Student loans could be discharged in bankruptcy without a waiting period and without requiring the borrower to demonstrate undue hardship prior to 1976. In 1976, a five-year waiting period was added to by the Education Amendments of 1976 for borrowers who could not demonstrate undue hardship. The waiting period was increased from five to seven years in 1990 through the Crime Control Act of 1990 and eliminated in 1998 through the Higher Education Amendments of 1998. Just a little history session for you. This left demonstrating undue hardship as the only option for discharging student loans in bankruptcy. The Fresh Start Act would make federal student loans eligible for bankruptcy discharge after a 10-year waiting period, not counting any suspension of the repayment period. 
borrowers would remain eligible to discharge their student loans sooner if they are able to demonstrate undue hardship. The college attended by the student, when the loans were borrowed, would be required to repay as much as half of the discharge debt if more than a third of the college's students receive federal student loans and the college has a consistently high cohort default rate and a consistently low loan repayment rate. The choice of a 10-year waiting period is perhaps based on the idea that a 10-year repayment term is a reasonable amount of time to be repaying student loan debt. It's also the standard repayment term for a federal education loan. Policy Recommendations Concerning Undue Hardship Discharge Petitions Let's take a look at some of those. The U.S. Department of Education can choose to not oppose undue hardship petitions for the bankruptcy discharge of federal student loans. It should exercise this authority way more often. If the U.S. Department of Education believes that the cost of collecting a borrower's defaulted federal student loans will exceed the potential recoveries, or if the U.S. Department of Education believes it is likely to lose the court case, the Department of Education should not oppose a borrower's petition for an undue hardship discharge. The department should focus scarce litigation resources on cases where the potential recoveries, net of the collection costs, are highest. Which seems pretty obvious, really. Let's talk about the cost of collection as we've been kind of discussing this a little bit. If the cost of litigation exceeds one-third of the potential recoveries, the Department of Education should not oppose the undue hardship petition because it's consistent with the existing regulations. This should be a mandatory standard, not advisory or discretionary. Moreover, when evaluating potential recoveries, the Department of Education should consider likelihood of collecting the loan and the amount that is likely to be collected and should not assume that the full amount of debt will be collectible if the discharge petition is denied. It's a waste of taxpayer resources to litigate a case when the actual amount recovered will be less than the cost of the litigation itself. Duh. (laughs) Let's move on to borrowers who are actually unable to repay debt. The U.S. Department of Education should consider the borrower's current and future income, the borrower's age and health, and also the amount of time that has passed since the debt was incurred when deciding whether to oppose an undue hardship petition for bankruptcy discharge. Okay, so for example, the Department of Education could adopt a standard that allows undue hardship discharge for borrowers who are age 65 and older. More than a third of elderly borrowers age 65 and older are in default on their student loans. The Department of Education should also consider whether the borrower dropped out of college and was unable to complete their education. Such borrowers have the debt, but not the degree that can help them repay that debt. They did not gain any benefit from their education. Likewise, the U.S. Department of Education should consider if the quality of the borrower's education affects their ability to get jobs with sufficient income to repay the debt, or even any employment employment at all. The U.S. Department of Education should also consider whether the borrower is seeking an undue hardship discharge due to factors beyond their control. And the department should also, you know, allow bankruptcy discharge for borrowers who are living under the poverty line and are likely to continue in such a low-income status for at least five years. We can also talk about income-driven repayment plans. 
The availability of income-driven repayment plans with a zero monthly payment for borrowers doesn't preclude an undue hardship discharge. Because you can argue that a borrower with a zero monthly payment under an income-driven repayment plan has demonstrated undue hardship. The poverty line is a minimal standard of living where the family has no discretion in how income is spent to pay for necessary living expenses. A borrower who is living below the poverty line is unable to pay anything toward their student loans. Moreover, if the borrower were able to use an income-driven repayment plan with income less than 150% of the poverty line, the potential recovery is exactly zero, and the cost of litigation clearly cannot be recovered. So why do it? Even when a borrower has non-zero monthly student loan payment under an income-driven repayment plan, the loan payment may be unaffordable when considered in the context of the borrower's net income. That's taken in consideration subtracting taxes and amounts required by law to be withheld and actual necessary expenses. The loan payments under an income-driven repayment plan are based solely on income and family size and do not consider the borrower's basic living expenses. Also, if the monthly student loan payment is low, the cost of servicing the loan may exceed the payments made by the borrower. This is not cost-effective for the federal government. The annual recertification required by income-driven repayment plans may be challenging for some borrowers, especially those who are disabled, single parents, elderly, or irregularly employed. Moreover, requiring a repayment term of two decades or more, as opposed to a standard 10-year plan, may itself be evidence of undue hardship. Think about it. When a borrower has a zero monthly loan payment under an income-driven plan or is negatively amortized, the debt persists and can grow without bound. This may prevent the borrower from getting a job and renting an apartment, as employers and landlords often consider a person's credit history. This is ugh, so inconsistent with the goal of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code in providing borrowers with a fresh start by wiping the slate clean. A bankruptcy remains on the borrower's credit history for 10 years, while student loans last for decades. Also, the forgiveness of the remaining debt after 20 or 25 years in an income-driven plan may be considered taxable income to the borrower, which also represents an undue hardship. Tax debt is not dischargeable in bankruptcy, but may be eligible for full or partial tax forgiveness if the borrower is insolvent. If so, why wait to discharge the debt? In contrast, the discharge of debt through bankruptcy is not considered taxable income to the borrower. Here's another point. Borrowers with high necessary expenses. The U.S. Department of Education should also not oppose an undue hardship petition when the borrower has high ongoing medical and disability-related expenses for themselves or a dependent. So, Borrowers who don't qualify for a total and permanent disability discharge may nevertheless have high medical and disability-related expenses that affect their ability to repay their student loans. The total and permanent disability discharge does not apply when it is the borrower's dependent who is disabled as opposed to the borrower. Likewise, the borrower may be unable to work a full-time job because they need to take care of a disabled child or elderly parent. 
The borrower may be unable to work a better-paying job because, of course, age, infirmity, medical ailments, or disability. If the borrower has a severe disability that seems likely to qualify for a total and permanent disability discharge, the department should not oppose the undue hardship discharge rather than force the borrower to undergo the additional burden of submitting paperwork for a disability discharge. Requiring someone to apply for a disability discharge is inconsistent with the plain language of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, which makes no reference to the discharge options available in the Higher Education Act of 1965. The availability of disability discharges and other accommodations should not bar a disabled borrower from seeking an undue hardship discharge. The department should consider whether the financial settlement from a divorce or separation significantly affects the borrower's ability to repay the debt. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 17 eliminated the above-the-line deduction for alimony payments for people who get divorced in 2019 or a later year. This means that adjusted gross income, AGI, is higher for taxpayers who pay alimony. Accordingly, the student loan payments made under an income-driven plan which base discretionary income on AGI may no longer reasonably reflect the borrower's ability to repay their student loans. Just another point to make. Let's talk about Social Security offsets. We're almost done. Just two more points to make here. The offset of Social Security disability and retirement benefit payments to repay defaulted federal student loans is a morally bankrupt public policy. Think about it. Most recipients of Social Security benefits are on fixed income and almost completely rely on the Social Security benefits to pay for food, medicine, housing, and other basic living expenses. If Social Security is a borrower's only source of retirement income, offsetting Social Security benefits represents an undue hardship on the borrower and the borrower's dependents. When the federal government gives with one hand while taking back with the other, it places people in dire financial circumstances where they have to choose between paying for medication and paying for food. The U.S. Department of Education should stop this offsetting Social Security disability and retirement benefits or just use means testing to determine when offsetting these benefits is not entirely unreasonable. One more quick note. Debt lacks legal merit. The U.S. Department of Education should consider whether it has a signed promissory note for the debt. If the U.S. Department of Education does not have a signed promissory note, it cannot prove that the debt is owing. Huh. That is our show for today. A little long one, a little longer than usual, but I hope it was helpful and not too confusing. I know there was a lot to digest there. But you can read this article for yourself, follow the links and resources to find out more, dig deeper into this, U.S. Department of Education Allowing Student Loan Discharge and Bankruptcy. Find it all when you copy and paste the title of this podcast at thecollegeinvestor.com in the search bar. Thanks again for stopping by today. We'll talk to you again.